You're listening to The Pet Factor, news on pet health, wellness, and the latest in veterinary medicine. Hi, welcome to the next episode of The Pet Factor. I'm Dr. Jim Hosek. I'm Brittany. And this week we're going to be talking about hypothyroidism in dogs. Hypothyroidism is a chronic disease, Mm -hmm. and it results in a lower than normal thyroid hormone. And we say hypothyroidism in dogs because it's really rare in yep. cats. There's been cases of congenital hypothyroidism in cats, and this is something that can also affect dogs and people. It's called cretinism. Yep. But a lot of times when we see hypothyroidism in cats, we caused it. We did <laughs> surgery on their neck. They had radioactive iodine treatment. Um, we've been giving them medications for hyperthyroidism, and they got too much. Mm-hmm. So we don't really worry about it. It's not usually a problem. If you got a fat cat, you can't blame it on their thyroid. Yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> The, the biggest thing about hypothyroidism is probably one of the most overdiagnosed diseases that we have in dogs. Yeah. And the problem is the tests are not very sensitive and not very specific. So we can have animals that have lower than normal thyroid hormones that are perfectly fine. Hmm. And we can have dogs that have levels in the normal level that are hypothyroid. Hmm. So there's a lot of things that we do when we're diagnosing hypothyroidism dogs that we're going to take into account other yeah. than just our blood tests. It's usually going to affect middle-aged dogs mm-hmm. uh, between two and nine years of age. There's no sex predilection. You could be male or female. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can occur in any breed, but we do see it more often in the boxers, <laughs> dachshunds, mm-hmm. dobermans, yeah. golden retrievers. That's a big one. That's one I see a lot. Mm-hmm. Great Danes, Irish setters, miniature schnauzers, and poodles. Mm. But I've seen it in every breed dog, but yeah. those dogs tend to have more of this um, immune-mediated form of it we'll talk about in a little bit here. You know what was rare that I saw was really excited about but shouldn't have been? We had a greyhound, a greyhound who had hypothyroidism. Hypothyroidism. Yes, hypo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and one of the things they talk about in the, in the things I was reading is that some of the sight hounds, they can actually have lower than normal thyroid hormones. Huh. So this, these can be dogs that can be misdiagnosed, okay. but they do get it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, they said they, they can have levels half the level of other dogs of thyroid hmm. hormones. And that'd be their normal? That'd be their normal. Huh. Yeah. Um, but it can occur also as part of an autoimmune polyglandular syndrome, which means more than one gland <laughs> is being affected mm-hmm. and it's autoimmune, the immune system is causing it. So it's associated oftentimes with hypoadrenocortism, which is where the adrenal glands are not producing enough cortisol and the mineralocorticoids that control their electrolytes, the sodium and potassium. And also diabetes, where the pancreas is not producing enough insulin. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, also known as a panendocrinopathy. When we do have an animal that's diabetic and hypothyroid, we're going to be thinking okay. that there's some sort of autoimmune um, process going yeah. on there. And like I said before, it can be present as a congenital disease, but that's very rare. It needs to be caught early. It can be treated and managed, but that's yes. the, the most severe form that we're going to see. Mm-hmm. Primary hypothyroidism is when the thyroid gland itself is being disrupted or it's atrophying. Yes. So it's actually withering away. It's getting smaller and smaller over time. You have less glandular tissue to produce the thyroid hormone. Secondary hypothyroidism results from decreased TSH, which is the thyroid-stimulating hormone produced by the pituitary gland. So the pituitary gland is in the brain, and it actually controls all the hormones all over the body. Thyroid hormone is general, controls metabolism. The more thyroid you have, the higher your metabolism, the lower thyroid, the lower your metabolism. And Mm -hmm. that's where some of the symptoms come in. Unfortunately, the symptoms are very nonspecific. You could have lots of dogs with these symptoms, and they're not hypothyroid. Mm-hmm. So what we're looking for, and, and these symptoms are usually slow and onset, 
gradual. Right. So we're looking for weight gain, lethargy, means they get tired mm-hmm. very easily, and that can be accompanied by a mental dullness where they just don't seem to be as active or interested in things as they used to be. Um, exercise intolerance or inactivity, so they might get tired very easily, or they just may not want to go out for yeah. walks as much as they used to. Cold intolerance, so they're typically their body temperature can actually be a little bit lower than normal, hmm. and uh, they like to be by the warm spot. So they'll sit at the sunny spot on the floor, they'll be by the heat vents or the radiator, trying to keep their body temperature up. Hmm. Alopecia, which is hair loss, yes. is a very common yeah. symptom yeah. that we see in the dogs. And it doesn't have to be they're totally bald, but usually what we'll see is it's very symmetrical. So they'll be losing hair similarly on both sides of their body. body. Yeah. Uh, it can present with a dull hair coat. So the hair coat used to be nice and shiny, now it's dull. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be thinner. So it may not actually be bald, but if you can see the skin through the hair, that might tell you that there's there's something going on with the thyroid hormone there as well. Yeah. We also uh, can see um, hyperkeratosis, which is thickening of the skin. Seborrhea, which is kind of an oily um, feel to the skin. Okay. Hyperpigmentation, where their skin starts turning black or dark. Oh. And that's because of the, the chronic changes to the skin. Ear infections, very common with this. So if a dog has recurrent ear infections, I might want to check them for a All thyroid right. deficiency. Okay. Rat tail. Yes, you see So that's that where common. you can see where the, the tail, losing the hair on the tail, it looks like a rat's tail. Mm-hmm. And then skin infections, recurrent skin infections, always we're going to look for an underlying cause because they're usually not a primary problem in dogs. Mm-hmm. Then we can also see the neuro neurological conditions that can occur with hypothyroidism. They can cause ataxia, which is sort of unsteadiness on the legs. They're, mm-hmm. they're not walking properly. Seizures. Yeah. Not very common, but that can be seen. Uh, megasophagus. And this is where the esophagus in the chest gets very dilated because it can't move the food down into the um, stomach very easily. So we'll take an x-ray and we'll see a big gas-filled esophagus. So whenever we see that, we're always going to check the thyroid. Hmm. Um, Facial drooping, which is uh, like the Bell's palsy, where they just get a little bit of decreased muscle tone in their face. Okay. Um, The head tilt and circling associated with vestibular disease can be uh, um, associated with hypothyroidism. And when we do a neuro exam on these dogs, we may see slower than normal reflexes, slower than normal proprioception, that's where we check to see if they know where their feet are. So they'll know, but it takes them a little bit longer to to sense that. Um, And then one of the more severe things that can happen is um, they can have a snoring sound or a uh, changes in their bark, and that's from laryngeal paralysis. Hmm. When we see dogs that have a change in their bark and we diagnose laryngeal paralysis, we're always going to check the thyroid hormone as well. Some other things we might find on our physical exam could mm-hmm. include what are called corneal lipid deposits or little uh, white spots that can appear on the cornea or a slower than normal heart rate. Okay. Again, it's slowing their metabolism, so it's not unusual to see that their heart rate would be slow. So in dogs, there are several causes for this. There's two causes that count for about 95% of the cases we see. About half of them are, it's called a uh, lymphocytic thyroiditis, which <laughs> basically means lymphocytes, which are a type of white blood cell, are causing inflammation in the thyroid gland. And that's interfering with his ability to produce thyroid hormone. So this is what we see a lot in the uh, the breeds that are very susceptible to this. You can diagnose it with biopsying the thyroid, but it's not going to change how we treat, so we usually don't. Yes. The other um, cause is just atrophy, and we call it idiopathic atrophy of the thyroid gland. Idiopathic just means we're idiots, we don't know what's you know, causing it. Yeah. Okay. We can feel the thyroid gland might be smaller than normal. Mm-hmm. Um, if they were to do a scan, they can they can find that as well. Um, we can also see it from follicular cell hypoplasia, which is where certain cells in the thyroid gland are starting to decrease. 
so it's not the whole gland, okay. um, or infiltrative tumors that can affect the, the thyroid. So not necessarily a thyroid tumor, but another tumor that's invaded into the thyroid gland or metastasized there. We'll also see it as a decrease in the thyroid-stimulating hormone from the pituitary gland. And that requires a little bit more additional testing. You can do a TSH stimulation test. That can be because of pituitary tumors or suppression of the pituitary gland due to uh, glucocorticoids, steroids, uh, from an overactive adrenal gland. Mm -hmm. So that can be the hyperadrenal corticism that we'll sometimes see called Cushing's, or from us giving the steroids to the dogs. And then the rarest form is probably iodine deficiency. This used to be pretty common in people. That would be the major reason why people would get goiters and hypothyroidism. But we've got iodine in our water and our food, yeah. salt, salt iodide. And so you're going to get plenty of iodine in most diets. Hmm. In fact, when we talk about the cats, one of the ways we have to treat them is to limit the iodine in their, their diet when cats yeah. have too much thyroid hormone. Levels of the thyroid hormone that, that can cause it to be falsely lower can be affected by a lot of things, including surgery and anesthesia, okay. concurrent illnesses, medications. Phenobarbital has been known to do this. Sulfonamides, which are a type of antibiotic. Carprofen, which is a very common non-steroidal anti-inflammatory we'll yeah. use. Comipramine, which is a, a drug used for separation anxiety. Um, these are all been shown to lower the levels on the test, but they don't often cause clinical disease. Okay. So we might do a blood panel on a dog that's taking an NSAID and we see the thyroid level, levels low. doesn't necessarily mean they're hmm. hypothyroid, so we just have to take that into account. Okay. And that's where we get some of this overdiagnosis comes into play. So in order to make our diagnosis, we're going to have to document low thyroid levels. And we're typically screening dogs with a T4 test, a total T4 we call it. That is low in about 85% of the dogs. Hmm. The problem is you can have dogs that have a T, total T4 level in the low end of the normal range, and they're still hypothyroid. So you can actually miss dogs with that. That's why it's only 85% sensitive. There's another test that's relatively inexpensive we can do called a TSH assay, which looks at the thyroid-stimulating hormone from the pituitary. That's going to be low in about um, 80% of the dogs and 90% of the dogs. The, but normal TSH levels does not conclusively rule out hypothyroidism. Mm. So you have to take that into account, too. If we have a dog we're very suspicious has hypothyroidism and we really want to tell if that's the case, the gold standard test is the free T4 by equilibrium dialysis, yes. or ED. This is the most expensive test. It's probably about four or five times the cost of a mm -hmm. T4 test, but it's looking at the active form of the thyroid hormone in the blood. Mm -hmm. So we've got... Um, Thyroid hormone is mostly bound up on the proteins. When it's free in the uh, circulation, that's when it can affect the cells. Okay. So we're going to monitor that or, or check that if we have a, a case where we just haven't been able to make the diagnosis any yeah. other way. And we're always going to use that in conjunction with the clinical symptoms we're seeing. Mm -hmm. we got a dog that can't lose weight. It's got a thin yes. hair coat and the T4 is low or the T4 is, even if it's just a uh, a little bit in the normal range, I'm still going to consider mm -hmm. that dog hypothyroid. I know we have some people, you know, live for their pets just like people. They hope that it is the T4 and it's not right. the extra treats that they're sneaking or things like that. So it is always fun to yeah. know that you have so many other things to look for right. when it comes to the T4 because we have a lot of dogs that come in that gain 10 pounds around the holiday season. Yeah. And they're just like, oh, it must be their thyroid. No, no. chances are it's not, but <laughs> sometimes it may, it, it, may it be. can be. And one of the other things we'll see in the blood chemistry, and we talked about this during the wellness panels, is elevated cholesterol. Yes. And that's elevated 80% of the time in dogs with hypothyroidism. So if we got a low normal thyroid and high cholesterol and symptoms, that's going to be another thing that's going to push me towards doing that. Um, some places they actually do skin biopsies, and you can see changes in the skin that are very 
um, consistent with this low thyroid hmm. uh, glandular changes in the skin. Um, but that gets expensive too. So typically, uh, one of the easiest things we can do is a response to treatment. Yeah. We have a dog. We're very suspicious. It may not be definitive on the blood test. We'll put them on thyroid hormone. If their symptoms get better, their thyroid levels better. come back on the high end of the normal range, then we've made our diagnosis. The um, a really funny thing that happened with the, the uh, free T4 by ED, when I was in my internship, there was a client that was having their dog in the hospital and was getting a lot of these free T4 by ED tests or hmm. by ED by ED. And uh, at the end of the time when she got the dog back, she wrote a really nice letter to the staff saying, I want to thank everyone for taking so really good care of my dog. And I also thank Ed for all those free T4 tests. <laughs> good old Ed. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, treatment's going to be pretty easy. It's oral thyroid hormone supplement. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be a twice a day for um, the dogs. It's, they can't really get by on less than that. There actually is a liquid formulation in Europe that is uh, labeled for once a day, but we don't have that here yet. And one thing to notice, and people will see this if they know someone who's hypothyroid, the dog dose is going to be a lot higher than the yes. person dose, <laughs> about ten times higher, mm -hmm. uh, because we just they just metabolize it different. So you can't really you know get the human supplements for nope. the dogs. Um, when we're doing the follow up tests, it's really important we do a time test four to six hours after they take their morning dose, mm -hmm. and that's going to be where the normal range has been validated. So if we can test them. We usually do the first test about four weeks after they start the medication. Mm -hmm. If we're having a dog that's having trouble getting regulated, we'll retest them every six to eight weeks for mm -hmm. the first six to eight months till we get there, and then once or twice a year after that. Right. The other important thing is um, that the sample be fasted. Mm -hmm. If we have lipemia in there, that can really interfere with the test and our ability to get a good result and see how they're doing. When we have concurrent diseases, so dogs that have heart disease, kidney failure, liver disease, the hypoadrenocorticism, which is the Addison's disease, the low um, adrenal cortisol hormones, or diabetes, mm -hmm. will usually start them on a lower thyroid dose and gradually increase it. But it's really important to get that other problem taken care of before right. you try and get the thyroid regulated. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to be fighting between them to see what's, what's the easiest thing to do. The other thing is to make sure you're sticking with the same medication. Yeah. So if you're, uh, we typically like to use the brand name thyroid because they're much more bioavailable. Um, so we know it's going to be consistent from bottle to bottle that mm -hmm. we get. But if your vet's changing doses or you go to an online pharmacy or you switch to a different animal hospital because you moved, you're going to want to make sure that you're getting something that's um, the same as close as possible. Or you may have to recheck those thyroid levels and adjust the dose based on that. Mm -hmm. So try and be consistent with that. And uh, if you are having trouble uh, regulating your dog, or if they've been regulated for a while, ask your vet if they changed the product that they got. Maybe okay. they didn't. We need to just reevaluate that where that's going on. The prognosis with this disease is usually very good. Excellent. We get the thyroid hormone supplement. Most of the symptoms will just reverse and go away. Mm -hmm. If we're not getting good response after a few months, we need to start looking for some other problem. Because yeah. there's something else something going on like other than the thyroid disease. So, again... If your dog's overweight and your vet recommends doing a test, go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. If they say, hey, your thyroid levels are fine, you say, well, maybe we could do some other tests if you're really sure that that's going on. Mm -hmm. But if you've got any of these other symptoms, um, one of the other ones I wanted to rec uh, talk about is increased drinking of water. Yeah. 
if they're drinking a lot of water, that's often associated with it too. But the thin hair coat is very common and the weight gain. Mm-hmm. Sitting by the warm areas is something that I always look for too. I'm always asking people. Well, I always find that that's weird considering that they're gaining weight, but their body temperature is getting lower. Mm-hmm. That's, in, that's different. Slower, yeah. So they're not they're putting the fat out, but they're not burning enough okay. to keep their core body temperature hmm. warm. Well, I guess that's also part of the good thing about just doing that annual blood work that we talked about, too, right. because our T4s are usually added on to that right. testing. Got, again, I can do it in a puppy, but in an older dog, we're going to be checking that, mm-hmm. especially the older cats, too. Yeah, because it's always fun to see how the T4s do change throughout the years. All right, let's move on to our news stories for the, the week. This is kind of a, a sad story, but I wanted to bring it up because it, it does have a very valid warning here. Mm-hmm. So there was a woman in Florida who was starting to warn all the people about the dangers of toxic mushrooms okay. after it killed her Boston Terrier less than three days Please. after he ate it. And this was something in her uh, in her backyard. Oh. And the dog went out, picked it up, and ate it before she could even think to try and get it out of his mouth. And it was a... About two days afterwards that he was unable to stand, he was grunting, he was having severe tremors in addition to vomiting and diarrhea. Hmm. By the time they got him to the vet, they were doing supportive care, but there was nothing they could do in terms of antidote or getting out of the system that had already been absorbed. Yeah. He developed a pneumonia. The tremors never really stopped. Hmm. And it was right before Thanksgiving that they ended up saying goodbye to him. So they don't know the exact variety of the mushroom that was there. There's certainly a lot of edible mushrooms that are going to grow, but mm-hmm. I don't know the difference. Most owners aren't going to know the difference. No. So, you know, check your yard periodically. Pull up those mushrooms that are coming yeah. up before they go out there so they're not there. Um, some dogs can experience symptoms as soon as 6 to 12 hours after ingesting mushrooms. Okay. Uh, it makes it difficult for the owner to determine if they were at the actual culprit. Yeah. So the best thing is if they do eat a mushroom, call your vet, mm-hmm. get them in. Sometimes the symptoms can show up within 30 minutes of, of the ingestion. Yeah. So you want to, if you can get it out of them as quickly as possible, the chances of it causing problems are a lot less. Yeah. That also goes with the fact, you know, always don't just let your dog outside because you never know what they're getting into. You yeah. always want to make sure you or keep an eye on your pet. In your yard. Yeah, you don't know what's growing, what someone threw in there, what landed, like... You know, heaven forbid, like a rat poison rat or something died in the yard and now your dog got it. So you always want to keep an eye out on your pet when they're outside. Never leave them unattended. All right. Uh, next thing I wanted to bring up, this was a uh, cat food recall we wanted to uh, let people know about. Um, this is from J.M. Smucker. They have a, uh, they recalled a bunch of lots of canned cat food. Uh, because of potential health issues associated with ingredients that did not meet their quality and safety standards. Mm. They don't say exactly what's going on. Um, It's uh, the Special Kitty Mixed Grill Dinner Plate. And it's a wet canned food sold individually and in part of variety packs. So we put this up on our Facebook page. Uh, If you go to Facebook, search for American Animal Hospital around December 15th when the post was put up. Um, that'll give you all the details. But so far, they've had not received any reports of cats being ill from this. Okay. But they're saying that whatever is in there could cause um, symptoms ranging from nausea and excessive salivation to diarrhea, hmm. vomiting, difficulty walking, seizure, and in extreme cases, death. Oh. So if you have this food, double check, make sure you got that out of there. Yeah. Um, they're in, uh, encouraged. Pet owners to contact your veterinarian if their cat displays any of these signs after eating this food. These products are sold online and in specialty stores, grocery stores even. 
Um, like I said, we've got the link on Facebook. Um, you can also just look up the JM Smucker Cat Food Recall online and that will get you the information. If you have these products in your possession, you should discard them immediately. If you have questions, uh, call the company at 888-569-6767. That's mm-hmm. JM Smucker at 888-569-6767. And that's the Special Kitty Mixed Grill Dinner Plate. Hmm. Again, check out the lots. We've got the lots and expiration dates posted on our Facebook page. So... Uh, there should be no reason for you to be feeding that to your cat. All right, this last story is kind of weird because this is a warning from the FDA about a product that people use that can affect your pets. Hmm. So there are these topical pain medications that contain non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or NSAIDs. Uh. And people applying them to themselves can actually put their pets at risk. Mm-hmm. So there's actually been several cases that, that brought this up. The most common one that's been associated with this is fluorobiprofen. Yeah. Um, it's used to treat arthritis and joint pain, muscle discomfort, and other aches. It's uh, marketed in the brand names are Ansaid and Pro- Frobin, um, and there's a generic. So if you see anything that has fluorobiprofen in the ointment, the topical ointment, that's what we're talking about. Okay. And pets, especially cats, are being accidentally poisoned by this. Mm. Right? Cats are particularly sensitive to NSAIDs, so that's why we don't have a lot of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories available for cats. The only one we really have is Onsior, and that's only approved for three days, so it's mm-hmm. not really a great one. We'll use some others off-label that we know are going to be safe, but always check with your veterinarian. The big one is Tylenol. Acetaminophen <laughs> will kill cats very quickly. Mm-hmm. It, it binds to the red blood cells and, and damages them. Aspirin. Cats will tolerate a little bit of aspirin, but they don't tolerate the same frequency. No. So before we had these other drugs, I used to give aspirin to cats every two or three days because it would just stay in their system that long. Mm. But if people gave it twice a day, like they would think a dog or a person would take it, that was way too much. Wow. So the FDA um, revealed that one case, there was a, a guardian of two cats sickened by fluorobiprofen that had recently used the pain medicine on their neck and feet. Mm. Um, and they don't recall the cats even coming in contact with it or licking them, but they developed kidney failure, but they were able to recover with treatment from their veterinarian. Wow. So that's excellent. Another household had three cats that became sick after the owner um, used Jesus. the products. Despite aggressive veterinary care, they did die. Oh, no. And they had used this product prior to the cats developing the signs. When they did the um, necropsies on the cats, they did confirm it was due to the NSAID toxicity. So this is annoying. You just put on your skin. And then you may pet the cat. Yeah. The cat may lick you. Um, you may actually leave it on your sofa or your chairs where you're sitting. And yeah. the cat comes there and licks it there. It only takes a very small amount for cats to get sick. Mm-hmm. And most cats start to show symptoms within 24 to 72 hours. Dogs are less sensitive, but they can develop Six. symptoms as well, especially the smaller dogs. So symptoms to look for. Decreased appetite, reluctance to eat. So they will look at the food and they just kind of turn away. Lethargy, mm-hmm. vomiting and diarrhea. Lots of things cause vomiting and diarrhea yes. in cats. But if you're using one of these products and you see it, you need to be extra aware. Blood in the stool. Mm-hmm. So that can be a symptom of the NSAID toxicity is bleeding in the gastrointestinal yeah. tract. Um, dark tarry stool. So that's bleeding from higher up in the digestive tract. And, and they did the Blood gets it. digested, turns black and tarry. Abdominal pain. Mm-hmm. Again, that goes with the gastrointestinal problems. Anemia. So that's a test your, your doctor's your blood's going to find on them. And increase thirst in urination because it can damage the kidneys. Kidneys, yeah. So um, the ways to protect your pets, keep these medications away from your dogs or cats. If you apply a topical cream or lotion, 
Avoid touching your pet for several hours and only after you've washed your hands mm-hmm. or the area that you applied it to. Mm-hmm. Be careful contacting the couches and chairs and bedding with these preparations. And like I said, cats can be affected by very tiny mouse, and there may be a risk of continued exposure to tiny mouse over several weeks or days. So yeah. if you're very careful, a cat may be doing it. Yeah. And I don't think most people think that you put something topically on that it is really going to affect their pet. Um, we had a cat a few years ago, actually. And it's, cat's doing fine, so it's kind of funny now. Um, we had an owner put on Nair. is one of the leg hair removal things. Wow. And the cat came up and rubbed the owner's leg. She wasn't thinking about it until she looked at her cat a few days later. And she was like, why are you bald on the side of your body? And then she ended up calling here and asking, you know, the vets, like, why is my cat bald? And we were like, we don't know. Bring your cat in. And we were like, wow, this is a nice, smooth patch. Like, did you shave? What happened? And mom eventually remembered I had Nair on my leg, and the cat rubbed it. Luckily, the cat, like, didn't lick it off as far as we know. We did blood work, everything, and the cat was fine. Cat's still doing great today. Hair grew back beautifully. Um, But it's just those things that people don't think to, you know, watch yourself when you're putting on medications or things like this because your pet will come up and rub or lick you or something like that. And you shouldn't be using these products on your pets. No, not at all. Don't use use Nair, of course, but don't use these (laughs) topical non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Um, your vet has, we have specific ointments that mm-hmm. are safe for animals, so please, please don't use that. And if you put fluoroprofen on your cat, you may regret that. Yeah. That might be the last thing that, that you do for them. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to our case of the week. Yes. And this is a cat, uh, Simon. He came in about a week ago, and the owner said, oh, he just doesn't want to eat. Mm-hmm. He's having, he goes and just is having a tough time eating. Mm-hmm. And when they looked in his mouth, they saw a little bit of blood, didn't know exactly where it was coming from. When I looked in his mouth, he had actually sliced the edge of his tongue. Oh. So it was like a little tiny flap, a little uh, corner of the tongue uh, was kind of just hanging out loose. It was very red. Hmm. And it was obviously very painful for the cat. Yeah. So we got him scheduled for surgery, but I gave him a shot of a non anti-inflammatory, the, mm-hmm. the, the <laughs> Onsior. And they said, boy, within an hour of that, he was feeling a lot better. That's so that good. had to be very sore for him. But cuts on the tongue, it's a very dirty area that can get infected very easily. Mm-hmm. So when he came in, we had him out. We, we did a teeth cleaning on him. His teeth weren't that dirty, but I wanted to, you know, get him under for me to look at the tongue. And this, he, they said he had still been doing well, even though the, the Onsior shot was only going to last about a day. Uh, this was three days later. He's still feeling good. good. And the area, there's still this little flap of tongue tissue hanging off, but the area was starting to look a lot less inflamed. Oh, wow. Um, hard to tell if it was infected, but you can see where the... The tongue was actually trying to heal the both sides of the slice. So now we had this little flap of tongue that was sitting out. So it was like on the edge or like in the middle? On the edge. Oh. On the left edge of the tongue. It had huh. this little triangle of tissue that was sticking out. So I could see that that was going to be a problem with him chewing yeah. and getting stuck on his teeth at points and him biting that. So we just basically trimmed that off. Huh. So now he's got like a little uh, defect in his tongue, but it should not affect his ability to eat or taste wow. or anything like that. Just put a few absorbable stitches in there. Tongue bleeds like crazy, but yeah. you know, once you get those <laughs> stitches in, it stops pretty easily. So those stitches will absorb within a week, uh, will fall right out, and then he'll be fine. It shouldn't have a problem. I did give him another shot of the onsior afterwards because I knew he was going to be sore from the surgery. Did they say what they think happened? I don't know. He was, might have bitten it himself. Yeah, okay, um, yeah. He might have been licking something that was really sharp. Yeah, okay. Uh, sometimes I've seen that happen. Um, huh. I remember having a dog uh, that had a big defect in his tongue. We don't know if he was born that way or if he had a cut, but it was like a forked tongue. Yeah, tongue. That's what I was thinking when you said a cut tongue. I was like, yeah. is it a snake now? <laughs> <laughs> so 
So if your animal pet is not eating, always we're going to always look in the mouth to yeah. see if the problem is there because it may not be toxin exposure to <laughs> drugs or anything like that. It may be as simple as that. I remember one cat we had that had a, a, a loose tooth that was yeah. preventing it from being able to close the mouth. Yeah. I was actually able to remove that in the room because it was just hanging there by a little flap of tissue. Mm-hmm. But that cat felt it was so thankful. <laughs> All right, let's move on to tech tips. Yep. And this is um, something I saw, I was online, and they were talking about this harness for walking dogs and how great it was, and a handle and all these different <laughs> features. So I said, I bet that's something Brittany could talk about, <laughs> and because we see a lot of dogs come into the okay. clinic with these harnesses, we do. not the collars anymore. Mm-hmm. So what are the advantages of these and the disadvantages, and, and why should people think about using one of these for their pets? So a lot of advantages for using harnesses um, are good for, like, especially smaller dogs with collapsing tracheas. Yeah. So they're, you cause less damage to the neck area. Um, that's, that's a weakness in their airway that causes this honking cough, mm-hmm. and when they pull on the leash, it just aggravates it. It just aggravates it. We see a lot of little dogs that you know, before harnesses were a big thing that would just be walking and you just hear, (coughs) and he's like, stop pulling on your leash. Like you're doing it to yourself. But now that they have harnesses, you know, they can enjoy walks a little better. Um, Some dogs actually do better with the pressure on their chest because it does keep them from pulling. Um, And then for some owners, it actually works a little better for dogs too. If you want, if you have a big dog and they pull, put on that harness and it helps keep them from pulling you can actually take your dog out for a walk and enjoy a walk um a lot of harnesses do have um like you said the handle on it now and those i think are good for dogs especially senior dogs um so we do see a lot of senior dogs with these special harnesses with the handle on it so if they have weakness in the back from arthritis or um, bad hips or something like that, and, you know, they lay down or they slip on something or they have a hard time standing up, you know, it does help the owner to have that extra, pretty pretty much suitcase handle, to grab that and give that dog the extra lift up. Um, We use those a lot here um, when we have to hold dogs for restraint too because it's easier just to hold that handle because then you're not having to pull the leash or anything Mm -hmm. like that because you actually have the dog closer to you um, with the harness and everything. Um, The one thing I will say about some harnesses is that a lot of dogs are not trained very well on harnesses um they have a harness on and they think that is free reign to just pull and that's because a lot of people don't you know they think okay the harness is doing good is better than you know pulling on my dog's neck but you also have to train them correctly for the harness you know train them to walk with you not to pull on the harness um we see a lot of large breed dogs that you know that would be working dogs and for them you put a harness on them back in the day they would like huskies and malamutes they would pull a sled and now you have a harness on them this is just work for them now so now we're getting pulled down the clinic yeah or you have owners that are getting pulled down a sidewalk and we're just like okay maybe a harness isn't the best thing for you or there are other options like we um, talked about the choke collars a few weeks ago yeah or like easy walk harnesses Um, those are ones that actually buckle in front of the dog's chest so when they walk the leash is pretty much dead center in the chest Uh. so it pulls to the side Um, Uh. so it keeps the dog whereas the harnesses and the that sit in the center of the back you can't control your dog with that. That's like holding someone's shirt and saying, now you're mine. That's not going to happen. But if you can hold the center of the chest, that does keep the dog from doing a lot of pulling and keeping them with you better. Um, and then there's just other 
harnesses that are good for crisscrossing for dogs that can easily slip out of harnesses. Um, they make unslippable ones where as soon as the dog moves, it seems tightened a little bit. Um, and those are nice because we do have a lot of dogs that are smart and they know when they don't want to go somewhere, they just push their shoulders forward and the harness can just slip right over. Um, sometimes no matter how tight you make it, they can do that. Um, so harnesses, you know, Plus side, they're great, good for collapsing trachea dogs, good for a lot of dogs who are well-trained on them. Minuses, dogs, I've seen so many dogs slip out of harnesses, especially working in our field. Make sure you get the right size uh-huh. and get them down properly. Yeah, and then go bring your dog to the pet store when you figure out that harness. They have so many different ones. Most pet stores, uh, the associates there will help you fit one for your dog's size and for your needs. Um, I... No, I go to Petco and I can see about 10 different brands of harnesses. And some of them are just to look pretty. And so they're not really like out there for function. If you have a big dog or even a little one and you want to actually get out there, you want a nice functioning harness, not one that's just going to look pretty. Um, so I would bring your pet to the store and have an associate help you with that. And then most harnesses, even if you take it home because your dog doesn't do well in stores or car rides or things like that. If they don't work, most pet stores have a money back guarantee right. or you can take it back and switch it for something else. Um, not many pet stores are going to say you're out of luck because you got the wrong harness. Um, so always do your work before you buy something like this for your dog because we, again, I have seen many dogs slip out of harnesses. Um, you don't want to have to chase them down the street or anything like that. Or when you take them to the clinic, we have, again, dogs that don't want to walk with us to the back and they'll just slip out. And if you have another aggressive dog in the lobby or something, you don't want those two dogs to clash. You want to always be able to have control, control of your pet. Um, and yeah, just... If I have a harness, I would say the front walker harnesses are better just because personal experience, controlling your dog from the back doesn't really work always. So if you're looking for a harness, look for the front walker, Mm -hmm. check with the uh, people at the pet store, and then um, try it out. Yeah. That's the best way to find out. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, next week we're going to still talk about the thyroid, but we're going to talk about the hyperthyroidism, which we see in cats. So that's where we normally see that problem. And uh, we'll talk about the diagnosis and the treatment and... So that's it for this week. I'm Dr. Jim Hosek. I'm Brittany. See you next time. Bye. You've been listening to The Pet Factor with Dr. Jim Hosek and 